Good evening. Take your Bibles, turn to Ephesians chapter number four, if you would, please. You forgive my informality, but that coat's too hot. I can't wear it. Because I can't wear it, I'm not wearing that wireless mic either, so you're going to have to. I bit off a large chunk for us to cover tonight, 16 verses of Ephesians chapter number four. Entitled the message, Walking Together in Unity. The first three chapters of this letter have dealt with doctrine. And now in the last part, the last three chapters, Paul deals with the duty of Christians. First, Paul describes our riches in Christ, and now he describes our responsibilities. The first responsibility that Paul talks about is unity. Now, unity among believers is a big deal in the Bible. It is such a big deal that Jesus, as we saw in John chapter 17, specifically prayed for it in his high priestly prayer. Sadly, down through history, the church has remained unified when it should have been divided and divided when it should have been unified. One recent area in which we've seen the ecumenical call for unity is the emerging or emergent church movement. The emerging church is a movement that claims to be Christian. The term emerging church is used to describe a a rather broad and controversial movement that purpose is to find a culturally sensitive approach to reaching our postmodern unchurched culture with the Christian message. Unfortunately, the movement is strongly influenced by a postmodern philosophy, and that is that there is no absolute truth. And if there is, we can't know with certainty what it is. So in the name of tolerance, they maintain that for the sake of love and unity, we should set aside all of our doctrinal differences and just accept one another as we are. Pastor Rob Bell is one of the leaders of that emergent church movement. In 2011, he wrote a book entitled Love Wins. He said that he had written this book out of concern for people who he felt were put off by the doctrine of hell. His book gives the false impression that there is no hurry about making a decision for Christ. He assures people that everyone's eternity is that they will end up in heaven eventually. The only problem with that is not what the Bible says. My point is that when those who claim to be Christians deny the fundamental doctrines of faith or they tolerate sin that the Bible clearly forbids, then there needs to be division, not unity. When churches have taken positions in support of homosexual marriage and members of the clergy who can be practicing homosexuals, then true believers need to separate themselves. 
Charles Spurgeon wrote, fellowship with known and vital error is participation in sin. But on the, far, on the other side of that counterbalance, far too many churches have been divided over personality conflicts and matters on which lines of fellowship do not have to be drawn. Christians tend to divide over issues of marginal importance, taking rigid standards in matters on which the scripture either has nothing to say or is at best a gray area. There are three things that I want to share with you tonight about unity. First of all, the attitude for attaining or maintaining unity. He says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to have a walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Of course, we notice right away that Paul begins with the conjunction, therefore, and can be rendered for this reason. Uh, Paul's challenging his readers to walk worthy of their calling. Of course, it's easier to talk the talk than it is to walk the walk. You probably have seen the movie <clears throat> entitled Saving Private Ryan. It came out in 1998. It starred Tom Hanks. It's set in World War II. Uh, it begins when General George Marshall of the U.S. War Department is informed that three of four brothers of the Ryan family were killed in action and that their mother is scheduled to receive all three telegraphs <clears throat> on the same day, telling her that her three sons had died. When he learns that there is a fourth son, uh, Private First Class James Francis Ryan, and that he is a paratrooper and that he is missing in action somewhere in Normandy, Marshall orders that Ryan must be found and must be sent home immediately. So an entire squad of men is sent to find him. And when the squad does find him, he refuses to abandon his post. He and his squad have been assigned a, guardi, uh, a duty to guard the last bridge over a strategic river. And if he left, he said he would never be able to live with himself. So his squad and the rescue squad uh, set up and they held the bridge against a vicious assault by the Germans. Virtually everyone in both squads is killed, except Ryan and a handful of others. As the main character of the movie, played by Tom Hanks, sat on the bridge, literally bleeding to death, Ryan stood before him, pleading with him not to die. But it was obvious that he was not going to make it, and with his last breath, he looked at Ryan, and he said to him, Be worthy of this. What a great reminder that we need to live worthy of the sacrifice that Jesus made on our behalf. If you're a parent, <clears throat> speaking of walking, you remember when your child learned to walk. 
Years ago, we had a member of our congregation who had a little boy. One day, I ran into the father and I asked him how the newborn was doing. He replied, well, not too good, actually. So with growing concern, I asked, what's wrong? He replied, well, he's three months old and he still can't walk. Now, obviously, he was joking, but we all realize that learning to walk is a process. It doesn't really happen overnight. And that's a pretty good analogy of the Christian life. The Christian life, or walk, begins with a change in direction that we call repentance. We turn from our previous way of life and we begin a new journey. The way that you walk does not earn your salvation, but rather demonstrates that you are saved. Interestingly enough, we as Christians sometimes view heaven as the purpose of our faith, the purpose of our life walk. But the truth is that we as believers have a place in heaven reserved from the moment that we place our faith in Jesus Christ. The purpose of our walk then is not to attain heaven, but to be conformed to the image of God's Son. Paul wrote in Romans 8, 29, For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Paul says then, this is characterized by both attitudes and actions. First of all, an attitude, the attitude of humility. The Bible, King James Bible, uses the word lowliness. It's a lowliness of mind, and it does mean humility. Humility is the recognition that we, all that we have and all that we are is due to the grace of God. This virtue is necessary in order to properly value all of the people around you. Yet, biblical humility is often misconstrued. You have probably heard it said, and I'm pretty sure I've said it. If you think you're humble, you're probably not. That's one of those things, if you take time to examine it, you see it's not necessarily correct. There is, of course, such a thing as false humility. But in Acts chapter 20, verses 18 and 19, in his conversation with the Ephesian elders, Paul said of himself, You know from the first day that I came to Asia in what manner I've always lived among you, serving the Lord with all humility. So apparently Paul knew that he had it, and he didn't lose it because he said it. In fact, how can we attempt to attain a virtue that we cannot know when we have it? Of course, if you tend to brag about it, then it's probably pretty sure you don't have it. That is followed by that attitude of humility is followed by an action, gentleness. That word is sometimes translated as meekness. And meekness is often misunderstood as weakness. But meekness is really the opposite. It is is power under control. 
Moses was a meek man, according to Numbers chapter 12, but he was capable of great strength and boldness. Jesus, we know, was gentle and humble in heart, but we know he also drove the money changers out of the temple. He confronted the religious leaders of his day with strong and by strong language. And by strong language, I don't mean vulgar. I mean direct. It is being gentle when there is a potential to be harsh. But gentleness is more conducive for unity, which is followed by another attitude, patience or long-suffering. Literally, this long-suffering means to be long-tempered. That does not mean to be frequently angry. But in fact, it means to be the opposite of short-tempered. It is the divine quality that allows God to be patient with sinners. Patience enables the Christian to endure the exasperating behavior of other people, which is in turn followed by another action, restraint. Bearing with one another in love. The New American Standard translates this as tolerance, which is a good translation except the word tolerance is so much abused in our day and has come to mean throwing aside all moral standards and not judging anything as sin. The phrase is similar to our phrase, put up with. It means to endure the exasperating behavior or the quirks of others. It means giving to the other person room to be different from you and all non-moral issues. Pride makes us think anyone with half a brain could see that I'm right. But we, when we apply this truth, we're forced to admit it may not be my preference, but it really is okay. What makes such bearing with possible is another virtue, love. Indeed, the virtue of love is the tie that binds all the virtues together. Then in verse 3, it says, making every effort or endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Now, displaying these virtues does not come naturally nor easily, nor does maintaining unity. Thus, as Paul says, the need for much effort. As Paul uses a word which means to exert oneself, to give diligence, all of which apply to deliberate effort. Notice that the unity of the spirit is to be maintained, not attained. What we're making with that distinction is that the oneness of the body of Christ is created by the Holy Spirit. He says we are all baptized by one spirit into one body in 1 Corinthians 12. But it is kept and preserved by the members of that body. Harmonious relationships, whether in the home or in the church, will not happen automatically. At some point, feelings get hurt and there will be disagreements. Sometimes over difficult issues, there will be inevitably be personality conflicts and clashes when someone gets on your nerves. 
To resolve these problems, we must remember how important unity is to the Lord. Not only the attitude for maintaining unity, but secondly, the basis of unity. Paul now lists off the seven pillars of biblical Christianity. First of all, one body, the church, verse 4. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. This refers to the body of Christ, the church. Of course, Paul speaks here of the church in the universal sense. That really, that word universal really bothers a lot of Baptists who want to make a distinction and say there is no universal church. Yes, there is a universal church. While there may be many local churches, congregations, there is only one universal church with one head, and that head is Jesus Christ. But you cannot be a member of Christ's body unless you are a member of a local congregation. Secondly, one spirit. This is the Holy Spirit, of course. It is ironic that although Paul mentions the Holy Spirit as a primary element of Christian unity, believers have often divided by the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. One hope of Christ's return, verse 4, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. We talked about that in my Sunday school class this morning. Hope is one of those words that has suffered in the English language so that it no longer carries the biblical meaning. Today, hope means something uncertain, something that we wish would happen, but we don't really expect to happen. The biblical idea is almost a complete opposite. It means something that we are absolutely certain will happen. And what he is talking about is the second coming of Christ. Titus 2.3 says, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of the great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. One hope, one Lord, Jesus Christ. All true biblical unity centers in the person and work of Jesus Christ. We cannot have unity with any person or any group that denies what the Bible teaches about the person of Jesus Christ such as the deity of Jesus and Jesus' bodily resurrection. Acts chapter 4, verse 12 says, There's salvation in no other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. One faith. And the word faith refers to the settled body of truth and doctrine that was revealed by God. Jude called it the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. It was the recognized body of basic doctrine that had been taught by the apostles. Christians can differ in some matters of interpretation and some matters of church practice, but all true Christians must agree on the fundamentals of the faith. Beware of anyone who would add to the completed revelation of God's word, whether it is like the New Testament of Christ's work, which the Mormons refer to their Bible, the Book of Mormon, 
or at a complete revision of the scripture, uh, like the New World Translation, which is the Jehovah's Witness interpretation of the scriptures. The Bible in our hands today is the complete word of God. One baptism, verse 5. Now, there is some controversy among Christians over the subjects of and the mode of baptism. Some baptize infants by sprinkling. We practice believer's baptism, which is that baptism is restricted to those who have confessed their faith in Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. The mode of baptism we practice is immersion. In fact, that is what the word means. The word in the Greek language is the word baptizo. It is a word that is transliterated, not translated. This is the reason. Because the translators of the King James Bible were answerable to King James of England who was a member of the Anglican Church of England, which practiced baptism by sprinkling of infants, they wanted to avoid a crisis. They wanted to avoid a conflict. And so they did not translate the word. They transliterated the word, which means they took the equivalent Greek letter and put it in the equivalent English letter. And they created a new word, baptism. But the word itself means immersed. The debate about that issue will no doubt go on until we get to heaven, at which time we will all be Baptists. And if you see my notes, you'll see a little smiley face there. One enters into faith by exercising saving faith, which is personal trust and commitment to Jesus, which is the basis of salvation. Although baptism is not a requirement for salvation, it must be recognized that baptism was commanded by Jesus and it was preached and commanded by the apostles. And then one God and Father. Our Father of all who is above all and through all and in all. It could be simply another way of saying that we are all one family regardless of ethnic and social differences. The concept of family changes how we relate to one another. If you have a conflict within your family, what do you do? You resolve it. You don't get to collect your ball and bat and go home. But beyond that, what Jesus said about relating to God as our heavenly father was radical. God had been referred to in the past as the father of the Jews. But Jesus said that we could relate to God as Abba, father, in an intimate relationship, which was very much radical to the Jews of that day. So not only the basis of unity, but now finally the means of unity. The first thing that we see is the source of the gifts. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. So Paul says that each of us as believers is gifted 
with at least one spiritual gift. So whether you feel gifted or not, you are. But we have to make a distinction between spiritual gifts and natural talents, like the ability to play an instrument. Warren Wormsby gives this explanation. He says, we must make a distinction between spiritual gifts and natural abilities. When you are born into this world, God gave you certain natural abilities, perhaps in mechanics or in art or in athletics or in music. In this regard, all people are not created equal because some are smarter, some are stronger, and some are more talented than others. But in the spiritual realm, each believer has at least one spiritual gift, no matter what natural abilities they may or may not possess. In verse 8 to 10, is this portion of scripture that is a little bit harder to explain. He says, therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now, this He ascended. What does it mean? But that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. The reference here to Jesus' ascension that we find in, which is a reference to Psalm 68, 18, presupposes, first of all, his coming down to earth from heaven. Therefore, the statement that Christ first descended into the lower parts of the earth may simply mean, may be simply a reference to his incarnation, his birth in human form. But there are others who link this passage with 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 20. And it is thought to reflect the ministry of Jesus immediately following his death but prior to his resurrection, in which he descended into Sheol, or Hades, to announce the accomplishments of the atonement to the lost, as well as to the dead saints of the Old Testament, who he then led captivities, or led captives in his train. He led those Old Testament saints into heaven. Well, there's yet another explanation in that these verses deal with the captivity in which we see in the resurrection and ascension. We see the awful power of Satan, of sin and death in the grave. The descent in the lower earthly regions would would then be a reference to his time in that borrowed tomb. And from this he arose and ascended in unparalleled victory. But regardless of which interpretation you pick, despite the complex issues, the clear message is that Jesus has dominion over heaven and earth. Thus, he has the authority to dispense gifts here as he pleases, to whom he pleases, and in the proportion he pleases, and with the expectation that we will respect his authority to dispense his gifts among his people 
as he knows best. The second thing we see is the nature of those gifts. It says, and he gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. There are, in fact, three places in Scripture where the spiritual gifts are given. 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, and here in Ephesians 4. Paul's list here is not meant to be all the possible gifts. The four categories that he gives are not exhaustive, but rather he is concentrating on the leadership gifts. It should also be noted that they are not exclusive in the sense that Paul is seen to serve in all four of those areas. First, there is apostles. The word apostle is used in two senses in the New Testament. The first are those given with the capital A, apostle. In the strictest sense, an apostle with a capital A were eyewitnesses of the resurrection of Jesus. There needs to be a distinction drawn with the fact there are many, there were many disciples of Jesus, but there were only 12 original apostles with the added exception of the apostle Paul. Their role in the church was foundational, necessary to the establishment of the church. And as such, their work or their function was temporary. The second sense of the use of that word apostle was with the little letter A, apostle. It speaks of those who are sent out under the authority of the church for some specific task. Such would be those who are today called missionaries. Since the word apostle means sent out ones. I think it's a good picture. If anyone deserves that title in our day, it is those who are sent out by the church to the foreign fields of this world to carry the message of Christ to those who have never heard. But perhaps to avoid avoid confusion, it would be better to fit them under the heading of evangelists. After the death of the apostle John, no one could legitimately be said to have apostolic authority. Prophets. When we use the word prophet, we usually think of those who foretell the future. Those were inspired men and women used in the process of revelation. And although there are those today who claim to have the gift of prophecy, we believe that the scripture teaches that the gift of prophet as well as that of apostle was foundational and therefore temporary. Most conservative scholars believe that the gift of prophet passed off the scene with the completion of the New Testament canon of scripture because the sufficiency of scripture makes prophets unnecessary today. There is a second sense in which the word prophet can be understood, not as one who foretells the future, but one who forthtells. That is the proclamation of the truth of the good news of Jesus. Then there are evangelists. 
Evangelists are literally the bearers of good news. These are individuals like Philip in Acts chapter 21 who proclaimed the gospel of Christ both publicly and privately. Timothy was charged with doing the work of an evangelist in 2 Timothy 4. Unlike the apostles and the prophets, their work did not involve laying the foundation, but rather building upon that foundation which had already been laid. Therefore, their work or their function continues to the presence. So there are evangelists today, pastor and teachers. Some want to separate those into two separate categories. There is a single definite article in Greek and the absence of the word some before the word teachers links those two terms as describing a single category of leaders. The word pastor is a common Greek word for shepherd and it is used interchangeably in the New Testament with two other terms that you have heard over the years. The word elder, which is the word presbyteros, which we get Presbyterian from, uh, which refers uh, to elder. It means maturity. And there is the word bishop. That is the word episkopos. It's the word we get Episcopalian from. It means overseer, as in 1 Timothy 3. Such men, we are told, are apt or able to teach providing instruction to new converts. And in this way, like the function of the evangelist, this role continues to the present. Now the last and final point, the purpose of the gifts. Number one, growth. To build up for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. First, the Lord's purpose in providing all Four types was for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, for the edifying or building up of the body of Christ. God's people are called to do the real work of the ministry. Leaders have the responsibility to equip the people and direct their service as the Lord leads. Growth built up unity, verse 3, till we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Although Christians will never attain sinless perfection in this life, the the goal of every believer is, as I've already said, to become conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. And the last one, is maturity. The proof of that maturity is seen, first of all, in stability, that we shall no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness by which they lie in wait to deceive. So believers who are not grounded in the word of God fall easy prey for false teachers and cults. If you look at most of the people who are drawn into the cults, They're not drawn from complete unbelief. They are drawn from other Christian bodies. But they are individuals who have never been grounded in the word of God. Paul uses several words to describe their methods. He uses the word trickery. 
That's an interesting word because it is the word that we get our word cube from. And so what does that have to do with any trickery? Well, what it has to do with trickery is the word cube comes to us from the idea of cheating at dice. Paul also warns in the cunning craftiness by which they lie in wait to deceive. This is translated by craftiness and deceitful schemes. The word schemes originally had the idea of tracking someone as a wild animal tracks its prey. Stability, submission to truth, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things unto him who is the head, Christ. This implies in opposition to what we talked about in the postmodernism of our day, there is such a thing as absolute truth. In the spiritual realm, and this is it, the Bible. And we can know such truth with a reasonable amount of certainty. And then in verse 16, cooperation. For whom the whole body joined and knit together by which every joint supplies according to the effective reaching by working by which each part does its share causes the growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Paul says that each of us has been given a gracious spiritual gift to be used in service to one another. Every part has something vital to contribute. And when all the parts work together with their specific function, then the church operates as it should. The Lord's goal is that the church leaders would prepare others for the ministry of equipping each person to do their part. Let me close with this story. Many of you know the movie Mr. Holland's Opus. It's a movie about a dedicated music teacher who had dreams of becoming a famous composer. The only problem is he really didn't have the gifts that it took to do that. And instead, he makes an impact that he really didn't fully appreciate He made an impact in the lives of a generation of students in his high school music program. Mr. Holland never got to write that piece of music that would have made him famous. But instead, he pours himself into the young people before him, a redheaded girl with pigtails who struggles to play the clarinet, a football player who can't keep rhythm but needs a band credit to keep his game eligibility, and a street kid who's mad at the world but who discovers himself in music. The years pass, and as the movie concludes, Mr. Holland is fighting budget cuts for the survival of the high school music program. He loses, and he retires. The last day of school, he cleans out his desk, and with his shoulders slumped down, he walks the school hall for the last time. He's a picture of dejection, reminding us of a life that is spent without our dreams being fulfilled. But as he walks, he hears a noise in the auditorium. He goes in to see what's happening. He faces there a packed auditorium of students and alumni who are thundering an ovation and chanting his name. The little girl with the pigtails is now the governor of the state, and she addresses Mr. Holland from the podium, and this is what she says. Mr. Holland, we know that you never became the famous composer you dreamed of being, 
But don't you see it today? Your greatest composition is what you did with us, your students. Mr. Holland, look around you. We are your great composition. We are the music of your life. Whether you know it or not, God is using you for his kingdom. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the reminder that we're important and that you have given us a task to accomplish together. Many times we look at ourselves and we're not too sure if we have a spiritual gift and if we have what it is and what we may be accomplishing for your kingdom. It may not look to us as if our dreams are being fulfilled. But we do have that reminder that through us and in us, you are accomplishing your purpose and your will in this world. Help us, Lord, to turn ourselves completely over to your Holy Spirit. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.